0: Welcome to episode 62 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvel Stories Countdown Podcast, in which we count down the 75 Greatest Marvel Stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. I'm your regular host, Blaine Dowler, and joining me today is the return of our first host and our rotating list of co-hosts, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John.
1: I've actually been here the entire time hiding in the corner. I'm really, really hungry. Do you have any yogurt?
0: Uh, no, most yogurt comes with berries. I'm allergic to all leafy greens and berries.
1: Uh, okay. Well, after this, uh, after this, I'm going out for some yogurt.
0: Okay. If you've got gummy bears, I've got some.
1: Oh, I can do gummy bears. Sweet. <laughs>
0: and the recipe to make them, although it is the touchiest recipe I have ever tried. I can only imagine. Okay. And today we are talking about the 62nd greatest Marvel story, which is actually an anthology of multiple stories.
1: Yeah, this was, um, I, whenever you have a book like this show up on a list, it makes you wonder exactly why it was chosen because there are six comic stories in this book, four of whom involve characters still in continuity, two of whom involve characters that anybody ever really thinks about, and only one of whom actually has a lasting impact directly himself and is still, you know, a major player. So it's, it's, it's an interesting choice. Can I, can I, can I pull a curtain off? Sure. This is going to be Marvel Comics number one that we're talking about today.
0: This is Marvel's first original content publication as Timely Comics. They had published a few uh, compilation issues a few months prior to this, which were just daily web comics printed in a comic book format. And they weren't created. They were just licensed, packaged. It was enough to get the investment capital to start doing their own stories.
1: Blaine, you just said daily web comics.
0: I did.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: that's like whenever I refer to reading the emails column. The
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, my bad. Of course, the the World Wide Web wasn't invented until 1991 by Tim Berners Lee at CERN. I have my "Where the Web Was Born" CERN T-shirt from my time there as a grad student. But yeah, daily newspaper strips. I should have said.
2: <laughs>
1: well, uh, Marvel Comics One uh was actually the only issue of this title, technically. Because beginning with the second issue, the title changed to Marvel Mystery Comics, which it was until issue 92 in 1949, after which it was Marvel Tales until the series ended with issue 159 in 1957. And this is, of course, a completely different series to the Spider-Man reprint book, Marvel Tales, which would come out much later. This first issue sold for a whopping 10 cents and had two printings. The cover date October print run had about 80,000 copies and probably hit at the end of August 1939. We have an approximate sale date of August 31st. And then the same issue went back to the printers and came back with a blacked-out cover date and a November cover date stamped above it for ten times the number of copies. I'm guessing it sold really well. As for the cover itself, it is not by the classically awesome Alex Schomburg, who would do so many covers in this era, especially of this particular title but rather by Frank R. Paul, who is an established sci-fi pulp magazine cover artist and illustrator for over 20 years by this time. The image he gives us is of a man of fire who has just melted his way through a metal wall and is apparently about to attack another man who is trying to hold him off with a gun, but bullets aren't stopping him as they just disappear to his miasma of flame. A caption box reads, This month, the Human Torch, the Angel, Submariner or Submariner, if you're a kid of the day who doesn't know how to pronounce it, Mass Raider. And another caption at the bottom tells us the book will be featuring Khazar the Great in 12 pages of Jungle Adventure, and across the bottom a red banner with white block letters that shout Action, Mystery, Adventure. So what are your thoughts on the cover?
0: I can see why it's compelling. You can tell that it's a different artist than the interiors, simply because primarily the face. We get a very demonic-looking face on the cover, where the Human Torch in the book has a very obscured face when he's in the state of flame. Right. He just has that that circular head, and there's not really a face on him at all.
1: I can see them describing the character to Frank Paul, and Frank Paul going with it without having any reference. Because, I mean, it fits the description of the Human Torch, but it's Mm -hmm. a very different design than what Carl Burgess would do.
0: It is. And this could be a lot of, you know, it's a startup company that doesn't really know how to communicate with the artists yet because they just haven't had the experience doing it. Marvel's growing pains are stamped on here. And Looking at the interiors, we also see that the different artists for the different stories have different long-term plans and different views on the medium itself, but we'll get to that when we get to the interiors.
1: Well, the publishing company is listed inside as timely publications, and no editor is named, but we know that it was uh, to be done by Martin Goodman, who would be running the show as publisher by the time Marvel relaunched its superhero line in the early 60s. This is an anthology book, so there are several stories in it, and the first is The Human Torch by Carl Burgess. He had actually drawn the story for a company called Funnies Incorporated, but that company's first publishing venture failed. I'll talk more about that later. And so they sold all of their stories to Timely as a package for publication. The Human Torch proved hugely popular, and Burgess wrote and drew the character exclusively for three years before going off to World War II. This first installment gives us an origin story. The title card at the top of the page has a very similar design to the cover, with the torch melting through a wall, so Burgess's design can be contrasted with that on the cover pretty easily. And the origin story has Professor Phineas T. Horton telling a mess of reporters about a problem with his latest invention. He has created... A synthetic man. Android life is now a reality, but somehow that is not the news. The news is that this pesky android has a problem that anytime it comes into contact with air, its surface skin bursts into flame. So Horton has to keep it in an airtight glass case. The reporters tell him to destroy the android lest it be used as a weapon, but he refuses, so they publish news of the menace in the papers, which draws the attention of the scientists' Guild. They come over to see it, and they agree with the reporters that they should destroy the android. So Horton reluctantly has his android sealed in a steel cylinder. That cylinder is dropped into a cube of wet concrete, which dries into a tomb for the synthetic man. Time passes, but Horton doesn't realize there is a tiny leak. That oxygen is slowly creeping into the cylinder, and after some unspecified amount of time, it could be days, weeks, or years the Human Torch is able to ignite and explode out of the tank. The Human Torch revels in his first taste of life and freedom, surprised to learn that he causes fear in people and generally confused at the world around him, but in incredibly good spirits about it all. He does hate, however, that he's causing damage, so he eventually decides to hide from the world by diving into a random residential swimming pool that is uh, just, you know, nearby. Unbeknownst to him, that pool is owned by a man named Sardo, who lives by, shall we say, a less widely respected code of morality. And Sardo tells his men to close the glass lid over the pool and empty out the water. The torch is now inside with no flame and no air to ignite. Now, Sardo is a low-down dirty protection racketeer. So he uses the torch to torch a steel shipping warehouse when the owner of said business refuses to pay protection money. The Torch realizes he's been used for evil gain, so he runs, leaps, and flies back to Sardo's house. Sardo sees him coming, so he hides in his secret underground lab while the Torch burns down his house. Sardo's men try to get away, but the Torch uses his heat to murder all of them. He then searches out Sardo's lab and melts right through the steel door to get at the man, but for some unclear reason he then leaves and goes to stop Professor Horton outside who is inexplicably with the firefighters outside the house as they try to fight the blaze. Horton sees a nitro tank in the fire and runs to grab it, I guess to stop it from exploding, but the torch is there and nabs the nitro tank before Horton can get it. The nitrogen leaps from the tank and his flame is doused, but he is still so hot that a police bullet fired at him just melts on his skin. Now, I breezed over it, but the nitrogen uh, putting out his flame is actually kind of an important point. Because later, the torch then runs back in to stop Sardo, Sardo goes to throw a vat of sulfuric acid on the torch, but it explodes from the heat, killing Sardo, and so the torch grabs another nitrogen tank to experiment with it and see if he can get his flame under control. He's successful, he leaves the house, and a bit later he is surprised to be accosted by several police cars. He douses his flame and readily accompanies the police to headquarters, where Professor Horton requests that the torch be remanded into his custody. However, back at Horton's lab, it becomes clear to the torch that even his creator is considering the lucrative possibilities of possessing a man of fire. So he bails, flying out into the night with a mighty leap, sailing through space like a comet. The end. It is an interesting first story. This is what really kicked off the Marvel Universe proper. I thought it was incredibly energetic. It it never lets up. It it gets both an origin and a first adventure into the story. And yet, as is often the case with uh, writing that's not bound by formula, it proves over time that this is not the entire origin of the Torch, because a few issues later, he joins the police force. A few months after that, he gains a young partner in his fight against crime, uh, whose name is Toro, who I actually think of as being used more than the Human Torch himself is. But that's probably just my own reading experiences.
0: Yeah, he, they were able to bring Toro back a little bit more often. Uh, when we talk more about the impact that this had on the Marvel universe as a whole, we'll talk about why the Jim Hammond human torch was off the table for so long, but Toro never really was. So people could go back and use Toro when the human torch was not available. So I would agree that you could argue that human, that the Jim Hammond human torch here, even though it doesn't have the name Jim Hammond yet, actually has more on-panel appearances, when you're looking at him, you're not seeing the Human Torch. But that's something we'll get into a little bit more later. In terms of the story itself, I'm okay with Phineas Horton showing up with the firefighters. I mean, he knows that he created the Human Torch, he knows this thing is out there, and he had to program the Human Torch. The Torch of Sense and had to come from somewhere. Phineas T. Horton, before he gets that temptation of seeing what the Human Torch can do, was probably a fairly upstanding citizen. So he would have felt some responsibility for all the damage going on. I can see him going to the fire stations going, look, I created this thing. It's out there. Let me go with you and try to stop it.
1: I can see that too. In the storytelling itself, there just seems to be a little bit of a disconnect because Sardo actually holds a vat over his head twice. He holds a vat over his head and then scene change to outside where now Torch is no longer dealing with Sardo. He's dealing with the outside and then back to Sardo and Sardo lifts another vat over his head and this one actually explodes. So it's just a weird bit of storytelling, but I can see what you're saying, that that Horton would definitely take ownership and responsibility of the torch.
0: Yeah. Uh, in mm-hmm. fact, for me, the one point that breaks down, it, it breaks down because of the part of me that's the host of comic book physics. If you have the swimming pool filled with water and you give it an airtight glass seal first and then try to pump the water out, there's a tremendous <laughs> amount of pressure that you have to fight. <laughs> this is going to shatter that glass because there's an atmospheric pressures difference.
1: The alternative is that you you do have a, a you do allow air in as the water is going down, but then the torch can ignite. And at least if it's airtight now, he'd have a, a finite amount of oxygen to burn off. But probably enough to get hot and melt through the glass.
0: Yeah, yeah. Either way, you've got issues because we see that the torch doesn't ignite, and we don't see the glass shattering under an atmosphere of pressure in terms of the <laughs> commercial grade glass available to the average consumer in 1939. <laughs>
1: Which is probably a lot less quality than the average pane of glass today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't even think we've got glass covers for swimming pools today. They're, I'm sure they'd be, you know, maybe fiberglass, most likely plastic, right? Even wood.
1: I was kind of surprised. No one seemed to be gobsmacked at the beginning of the story that Horton had just created life. Yeah. it's, it's. I mean, he he's made a, a synthetic man. And it's kind of like in the Star Trek mythos. You know, there's there's so much fuss made about data. Being the only android in his next generation and and his concept and everything, but there were several different forms of android life in the original series, and no one seemed to really care.
0: Yeah, I was, you know, just thinking back to was it what are little girls made of?
1: Right, and
0: you know, a number of other episodes from there makes me wonder how detailed Kirk's reports back to Starfleet were, (laughs) given the number of times that he ignored the Prime Directive. I'm betting he did some omitting now and again. Yeah
1: on a regular basis.
0: Yeah. Or even the time he claimed to help write the pri- the prime directive. I remember the mission log guys going, what really? And I was at home listening going, well, yeah, he writes a new version every time the current one
1: gets in his way. It's like at the end of where little girls made Up, he probably just edited his log to say, so you thought that Dr. Corbin was dead. Turns out you're right. And uh, then I had a bowl of Cheerios and that's Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> I do love the torch's smiling face throughout. Even when he's on fire, he is just in such a good mood. He's happy to be alive. He's enjoying his adventure. He's, even when he's killing people, he's just an upbeat guy.
0: He is. Um, he is one of the first major heroes. He's one of the first Marvel Comics crossovers. He's, he's one half of it. That would happen in Marvel Mystery Comics. We'll probably talk about that in a little more detail when we get to the other character involved later on. You know, normally when we're doing these, we talk about the issues first and the plot synopses and then jump ahead to the implications. Given that this is an anthology, I'm going to suggest... Let's run the implications of the Human Torch first before we move on to the second story and just kind of do the run that way. So it's all the Human Torch talk, then all the Angel talk, then all the Submariner talk.
1: Well, the Human Torch was one of the most successful characters of the Golden Age. He was the first one to get his own feature title from timely publications, even though each issue of Human Torch had a Submariner story in it as well. It was his name on the cover. As was common in the Golden Age. Yeah. And yet, once his run is done... And his mid-50s revival is unsuccessful. Whenever Stan Lee goes to make new superhero comics, quote-unquote, the way he would want to read them, he uses a Human Torch idea that is completely and totally different in everything except for name and power set.
0: Yeah, very much. The Human Torch of the Fantastic Four is almost entirely unrelated to this one. I mean, this Human Torch shows up in Marvel Comics continuity a couple of times in the 60s. Once was to maintain copyright, because Carl Burgos was coming after them saying, look, you haven't used my character in X number of years, and if you don't use them, the rights revert back to me, so I want these rights back, I want to keep going, at which point, possibly under the instructions of Martin Goodman, who seemed like that kind of guy, the original Human Torch shows up for a Fantastic Four annual to meet the new Human Torch and dies. (laughs)
1: i hadn't thought about that (laughs) uh you want to make you want to make some gripes okay let's use your character
2: and kill him
0: yeah and then again burgos had the ability when the next time frame elapsed to just tell new stories of the character and pretend that one didn't happen because you know ignoring continuity does happen in comics especially then just you know the if the fantastic four first launched 15 years ago they were not trying to be the first man on the moon some things have to change to maintain the timeframes, whether it's 15 years ago, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, we've got that sliding Marvel time
1: scale. And, 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 yeah, I, I tend to liken this to the Flash who, you know, you had Jay Garrick in the Golden Age and Barry Allen in the Silver Age and they had really no narrative connection. But once they meet, they have like an emotional friendship connection and they like working together and, and Barry Allen looks up to Jay and Jay's proud of Barry. And the, the deepest emotional connection I think that we ever get between Jim Hammond and Johnny Storm is that in the seventies, Johnny Storm wears red for a while to acknowledge the human torch's legacy. And I think that's about it.
0: It is pretty close to it. There's, we might see that change just to keep going with the history of the human torch. After they killed him off, they realized, well, in 17 more years, we might deal with that again. So we need a way to argue that we're still using the character. So it was retroactively decided. That the chassis of the original Human Torch android was Ultron's starting point when he created the Vision. So, for years, the Vision was basically a rebuild of the Human Torch, which is in some ways symbolic since the Vision himself was a recreation of a Golden Age hero.
1: One of Roy Thomas's probably greatest contributions to the Marvel Universe.
0: Yeah, I would agree.
1: And continuing from there,
0: the Human Torch shows up again in the Invaders stories, which were set during World War II.
1: Right. So he does get a lot of usage in the mid-70s through the... Yeah, early 80s, I think. Early 80s, I think. Yeah, I was trying to figure out how long Invaders ran.
0: Yeah. So he was part of it, but again, because those were set in World War II, their hands were a little bit tied in terms of how much impact they could have on the modern continuity. So again, that was more... I mean, really, if you look at the timeframes, that Invaders series launched a little less than 17 years after that Fantastic Four annual...
1: (laughs) And that copyright law comes back into play.
0: (laughs) So Jim Hammond has come back, uh, originally really brought back properly by Alex Ross in the Avengers Invaders series that he did in combination with Dynamite. Used him again in the eight-issue Torch series, which also had a lot of play with Toro and the original Vision and a lot of the Golden Age heroes. Now he's part of the all-new Invaders and showing up in Fantastic Four under James Robinson.
1: And the all-new Invaders series, I think, is coming to a close. But if James Robinson is using Fantastic Four, then he could be sticking around. He can be. Uh, At the time
0: of this recording, which is being done well in advance, Jim Hammond is currently the guardian of the Kids from the Future Foundation because the government has decided that the lives of Reed and Sue Storm are just too dangerous to have kids. So they took them, which led to a great panel where the Invisible Woman comes home, the Avengers are there, and she's like, oh, you guys are going to help? They're like, no, we're here to make sure the government takes your kids. At which point the invisible woman smacks down the entire team of Avengers in seconds, but it's still too late to hang on to the kids. Wow. Jim Hammond does show up afterwards and say, Hey, look, what they're doing is wrong, but somebody's going to watch the kids. I've taken that responsibility on myself. They are in good hands and I will keep you updated on their status, even though I can't let you see them. So she's grudgingly agreed to that. Since he's got Franklin and the rest of the future foundation, Valeria is elsewhere and based on solicits for upcoming issues. That's next on Sue's Priority, where she's saying, okay, Franklin's with Jim Hammond, Valeria's with Doom. I know who I'm going to get back first.
1: <laughs> I guess it's worth mentioning that, uh, we have mentioned it briefly in passing, but the Human Torch is not the only character to be revived in, in almost only a namesake way. There were the Vision and the Black Widow, who bear very little resemblance to their Silver Age versions. The Vision has at least a visual similarity, even if nothing about the character concept is the same. And our next character, the Angel, has also been revived in a completely unlike way. Iron Man didn't have a namesake, but there's a Timely Comics character named Electro, who is most definitely an Iron Man prototype. Um, and so it's, uh, it's interesting there. But Burgess went off to war after writing and drawing this strip for three years. Um When he came back, I guess you can't go home again because he did continue to work for Timely, a.k.a. Atlas, a.k.a. Marvel, uh while pursuing a career in advertising, and he never really did the torch again. He closed out his comics career by writing some of the last Ant-Man, Giant-Man solo strips from Tales to Astonish, and that was his last published work. Which is
0: an unfortunate
1: note to end your career on. Yeah, <laughs> but he was probably doing so many other more important things, making better money other places that he didn't really care.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as far as the comics industry goes, Hank Pym has had an impact on the Marvel universe. You cannot deny that. But
1: He had an impact on Jan too. Oh sorry.
0: Yeah, I I actually prefer him before he became Giant Man. The Ant Man stories were just straight up fun. When they made the shift to Giant Man it became bland and, and pretty standard superhero stuff.
1: The Ant Man stories have been really, really fun. The podcast about Over at Avengers inspirations. They're quirky and clever. And they're they're very much of their era. Mm -hmm. but they're fun.
0: Yeah. It's he's a hero who can't punch his way out of the problems. So they had to be a little more inventive in the storytelling. Right. When they, when he became giant man, that need was no longer there, but
1: should we go into the angel?
0: Yeah. That's what I was about to say. Back to the angel.
1: Um, He is the second character in this book to remain a part of the Marvel universe. If in a very much smaller way, Paul Gustafson is the sole byline and having moved from Finland at age five, and studied civil engineering before turning to art in his late teens, he was young and newlywed when he got a job working for the aforementioned Funnies Incorporated. Funnies only supplied the contents for this magazine, but also sold work to Centaur Publications and Quality Comics, so some of Gustavson's early work appears there as well. But while Paul is the only byline on the printed version of the comic, it's possible that the first year of Angel Strips were written by Ray Gill who was an editor at Funnies Incorporated, and he is less well-known than his brother, Joe Gill, who actually co-created Captain Adam for Carlton Comics. So um, Paul Gustafson, though, I think is the main creative force behind the character. And in this opening story, a group of racketeers known as the Six Big Men have taken over the city. Which city? The city. They've spread fear and terror with their protection rackets and access to corrupt politicians and lawmen. So in the mayor's office citizens are wanting to be sworn in as special investigators so they can take the law into their own hands and take these men down. The leader of the gang or not really gang but the leader of the citizens uh movement, the campaign against these six big men is one Dr. Lang, and he suggested they hire the Angel to clean up the mess. But the police balk at that because the Angel is too ruthless and will stop at nothing. While they are debating the issue, A rock crashes through the window with a note on it from the angel who identifies in a list all six of the big men, along with an unknown big boss, and he promises to take them out one by one. And although Dr. Lang voices his support for the angel's endeavors, in his mind he figures the angel will never figure out who that big boss really is. A few days later, big man number one, Gus Ronson, is chased down and strangled in his own car by the angel. Mike Malone is physically pummeled to death by the man in the blue suit. And a mysterious woman leaves the angel a note to notify him that John Dylan, the third man on the list, has committed suicide in fear. Uh, so that's three big men down. The note from the woman also says to be careful because number four is waiting for him and expecting him. The angel fights his way through a gang of men to get to Trigger Bob, but he is subdued and tied up. Trigger is about to mow him down with a tommy gun when the mysterious woman shows up and tells him not to do it there. I don't know if she's worried about getting blood on the carpet or what. But the big boss has ordered that big man number five, Steve Ankle, who is waiting upstairs, that he and Trigger are to take the angel for a drive to the woods outside the city. Once there, the woman, whose name is Lil, discreetly cuts the angel's bonds. So he grabs Ankle and uses him as a human shield against Trigger's bullets. Trigger raises his gun to fire anyway, so Ankle grabs his pistol as well, and the two men shoot each other simultaneously and kill each other. Lil has driven off, so the angel goes after Dutch Hansen, the sixth man on the list, catches him in his office and throws a heavy chair at him, knocking the man back against the stone fireplace, and he dies from the blow to the head. Seeing a note from the big boss on Hansen's desk and using it as a clue The angel goes to the city bank a few minutes before closing and catches Dr. Lang and Lil going inside. He catches them both at gunpoint and takes them to the police before telling the reader that these two had agreed to split all the protection racket money seven ways, but they wanted the six big men off so they could keep all the money for themselves. And that is the end. Um, the man is called the angel because when he stands in a uh, spotlight, His cape sort of has a wing effect in the shadow, and he wears as his chest symbol a set, a a pair of spread eagle's wings or angel's wings. There's definitely nothing flyy about him like the later angel. Definitely no mutant wings sticking out of his back. It's more of a um, visual iconography kind of name than anything else. He's really just a man in a costume who beats people up and kills them.
0: Yeah, his origin is established at some point later. It was recapped in both the 12 and in the Marvel's Project
1: later on. If it is established in the Golden Age, I haven't read it. And I've read some 20 or 30 angel stories.
0: I have not read any Golden Age comics that tell the origin. I just know when they recap it in both the 12 and the Marvel's Project, the origin is consistent. So that was modern editorial saying, this
1: is the origin you're both using? Yeah, maybe they establish it in the 12 and then the Marvel's Project uses it. I don't know.
0: Yeah, they did launch close enough to the same time that I don't know where that the chicken and the egg loop goes in that one, right? Whether it was just we're bringing them back and they sat down together and hashed out something that everyone agreed on, or whether there is some just obscure story that tells the origin that neither of us has come across, right? That I can't say. One of the things I do like about it, when we go back to the Golden Age stories, a lot of times what you will find is that all the panels in all the stories are of uniform height, and that's because at the time comic book publishing was not terribly lucrative for the creators. They were trying to get their books into daily comic strips in the newspapers. That's where the real money was. Even if you go back to Action Comics number one, you can see Superman is laid out to be chopped into these daily newspaper comic strips. Most of the stories in this issue, including Human Torch, Angel, Submariner, essentially four of the five stories that we have here, and the four characters that survived, the layouts and panel designs are clearly meant for the comic book page. You've got some panels taking corners out of other panels. You've got non-uniform height. You've got arrows pointing in terms of the direction to read. So some of these are comic book stories that were meant to be comic book stories. They were not, well, we can't get into daily newspapers, so we'll put our stuff in years and hope it takes off, as was the case with so many of the era.
1: Yeah, Superman was actually marketed in newspapers for years before he ever had comic books. it was just unsuccessful.
0: Yeah, even the original choice to publish... Superman, through what was then National Comics, was a very reluctant choice, just saying, we got to eat. We need to sell this to somebody. And they agreed to go with National on the condition that they got the cover, because National really wanted them for action number one. That was never their ultimate goal, although now you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who thinks of Superman from the daily newspaper strips first.
1: Yeah, but those daily newspaper strips were often very, very good. And in fact, he they, they did some interesting things there. He was married in the newspapers for quite a while. Uh, back in the fifties, it was uh interesting.
0: Yeah, yeah. The daily strips do go in different directions quite often. I mean, just look at the origin of the Joker in the Batman newspaper strip. We actually have one.
1: They actually have one.
0: <laughs> yeah. Aside from the, there's the implication of one in the Killing Joke, but it's never quite laid out. Whereas the Batman newspaper strip gives a clear origin of the Joker, saying this is where he came from, this is who he was before, this is how he became the Joker. Right. That's done there. Well,
1: some of us prefer to have our past in multiple choice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's nice to see different takes on the character. I mean, that's – it's like – when I look at movies, I, as long as they're faithful to the spirit of the source material, I'm not picky about the letter, right? I enjoy mm-hmm. the Sam Raimi movies. Who cares if the web shooters are organic or not? Right. Same with Ultimate Marvel versus regular Marvel or Elseworlds versus regular DC, right? I'm open to new takes as long as they're not doing a, basically a new version of the character – in the old continuity. Mm -hmm. If you're going to tell a fundamentally different character, well, you better tell the story that takes him from the character we know to the character he becomes and not just jump in. So, yeah, with the angel, we get a character who has potential. We don't even know what his alter ego is here. I don't know if there's even any thought to that at this point because he's
1: one of the few vigilantes we see who doesn't wear a mask. Yeah, he just jumps into things. He's he's a mysterious guy. He He's suspected by the police because his methods are rather violent of course this was in a day and age where police methods could get away with being rather violent sometimes of course that is toned down after a while uh so many of our heroes are you know willing to kill their villains in these early stories i think once editors and writers realized that their audience was on the younger end of the spectrum they started toning those things down Mm -hmm. but yeah he's a force of nature with very little known about him and um like I said earlier, in the two or three years of Angel stories that I've read, we never find out anything about him. He's,
0: in some ways, he kind of reminds me of The Punisher. Mm-hmm. Right? He is just as brutal when it comes to, you're a bad guy, you are going down. And coming off the Depression, you couldn't always guarantee that the police were on the up and up. So it's not at all uncommon to find heroes who will take justice into their own hands rather than passing them off to the local authorities. And he's one of them. It's, no; oh, these guys are causing problems. I am going to end them. Much as the Punisher in his war on crime, we just don't have a Vietnam War to back it up. So, unfortunately, this particular angel has not gotten a lot of use in the recent years. Aside from the Twelve and the Marvels projects, I can't think of any modern appearances of the angel.
1: Yeah, I couldn't think of any either. I mean, he's one of those lesser known and therefore to my mind more intriguing characters from marvel's golden age but um but yeah
0: yeah i really remember wishing that they would reprint some of those stories after reading the marvel's project because the marvel's project by brubaker is one of my favorite stories from recent years it's a very good standalone it's one of the things that bridges the nick fury character from the howling commandos era to his CIA and later shield incarnations in the Silver Age it it does a lot with these golden age characters and it's a very well told story
1: I have to check it out because I've read um I read Marvels when it was being published I read that eagerly and I read some of the Marvels project but I have never read it all the way through so I need to go back and get that
0: yeah that's one I would highly recommend or 12 with all the shipping delays by the time it got back on schedule and got it published I bought them all I remembered enjoying it but there was such a long delay in it I wanted to reread the whole thing, start to finish, to remember where the characters were.
1: Yeah, the 12 was one of those projects when I heard about it, I was like, oh, wow, that sounds right up my alley. But it wasn't finished, it was on hiatus, and it wasn't any indication it would be finished. And then whenever it was finished, I was reading other things. Yeah, so that's what I own in
0: its entirety. I need to go back and read how it ends. But it's another entertaining look at some of these Golden Age heroes.
1: Yeah, the only other note I had here is that I pref- uh, I thought the art was more sophisticated here than it was in The Torch. Not that Burgess was bad, it just I think Burgess focused more on the energy of his storytelling than on the details of his, of his actual design, whereas Gustafson does some great facial design and expressions in this story. He would continue writing The Angel for 20-odd issues, but early during that time, he went to work for Quality Comics, so his work for them increased and eventually stopped writing The Angel. It was taken over by other crea- uh, creators. Gustafson would create uh, uh, DCU characters later, such as the Human Bomb and Alias the Spider, Magno, Jester, and Midnight. These were all characters that DC used later when they bought Carlton, but I think Human Bomb is probably the best known. In the 50s, Gustafson would go on on to work on the uh, magazine Blackhawk, but not on the actual Blackhawk stories. He worked on the backup strip Chop Chop, and the three and a half years he did on that are the last comics work I know about before he went on to become a surveyor and a civil engineer for the state of New York.
0: Okay. I'm guessing Chop Chop was not about a chef.
1: I hope it was cuz I hope it wasn't some Asian stereotype thing. It probably was though cuz it was the 50s. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, that brings us to I think possibly the star of the show, the submariner. Yep. This is
0: the character where the character we see on this page is the same character we see on on Marvel Comics pages from this point forward. So we can still find Jim Hammond, but there's a large period where we couldn't. Right.
1: And even though he is the character in this comic with by far the largest direct impact on the later Marvel Universe, technically he didn't have his first appearance here. Earlier I mentioned that Funnies Incorporated had a failed publishing venture before changing gears to just packaging and selling strips to other publishers. And that one attempt was Motion Picture Funnies Weekly, which was intended to be given out as a promotional comic in movie theaters, but only a half dozen or so uh, copies were ever printed before they decided not to. Not to do it it was an anthology title like this one but smaller so the submariner ship was only eight pages of black and white art and when that venture proved unsuccessful because I guess spending money to make it and then trying to give it away for free proved cost prohibitive the work was sold to timely writer and artist Bill Everett was then asked to do four more pages for the new Marvel comics version and that is what we have here um, Everett's family was well off during the Great Depression Everett had an eye for art, and his father always wanted to see him go into cartooning. But sadly, his father died young, and uh, when Bill was also still relatively young and didn't get to see him sell his first work to Centaur Publications. Bill Everett co-created Amazing Man at Centaur, who in recent years has been grafted into the Marvel Universe. But when art director Lloyd Jacket left Centaur to work for Funnies Incorporated, Everett followed, as did Carls Burgess. And um that is how they came over there to do the stories we have here. So, the Submariner was his first project there, and that brings us to this story. We open on a salvage operation in the ocean, but the divers are stymied by clues that someone has been at the wreckage before and recently. They continue working in their diving suits when they see an unsuited swimmer emerge from the wreck and swim away. The mysterious Submariner doesn't recognize the walking tank suits as men. He thinks they might be robots, so he cuts the cables that he thinks are their power cables, and he attacks the two men, brutally killing them. When the men up in the ship realize that there is danger, they send down one more diver to investigate, and that bosun sees the dead bodies, loses his mind, and is immediately retracted to the surface. When the submariner sees the ship above, with propellers beginning to churn and escape, he grabs it, wrenches off the propeller, and slams the vessel into the rocks. Elated at this feat of his own strength, aka really happy at having killed all those guys, the submariner dives back to the deck, grabs the two divers slash robots, and takes them to an underground cavern with a throne where sits a beautifully robed fish-faced figure whom Namor addresses as Holy One. Removing the helmets and surprised to see that these are in fact Earthmen, Namor is congratulated by his mother, who just
2: entered congratulated for helping begin their war of revenge. Namor asks, why are the Earthmen bad? After all, wasn't his own father an Earthman? And that launches a flashback, where Namor's mother tells of how she was among their people who were nearly destroyed in the South Pole back in 1920. The surface people's various scientific investigations that involved lots of explosives. And that's how we know that this is a fictional story, because there is no water at the South Pole. Namor's mother, Fen, because she most closely resembled the surface people, was ordered to go up as a spy, seducing her way to secrets that would help the submariner race survive. She was found on a ship, thought to be a stowaway, and taken to the commander, who was kind to her, taught her English, and eventually fell in love with and married her. Now, during all this time, Fen continues to spend a great deal of time in the water because her race can't survive outside of water for more than five hours of a stretch. And all the while, she was giving secrets back to her people. Now, the submariners are continuing to be bombarded, and there are only now a handful remaining. But all these years later, Fen's son by that commander, Namor, he uh, can survive both on land and in the water. He can fly in the air. He is super strong, and so he has been chosen to lead their race in a war against the surface. And so Namor, the avenging son, faces the surface men of the world in what promises to be mortal combat. And that's the end of the main story that would have been printed in Motion Picture Funnies Weekly if that book had ever gone through. But since he had to extend it, we do get a first adventure of Namor and his cousin, young Dora, where they wreck a lighthouse. And that's about all I can say about that part. They wreck a lighthouse. The people don't like that they wreck the lighthouse. And they try to fight back, but Norm- Namor and Dorma escape. The difference in
1: production between the two parts of the story is pretty marked. The first portion takes place almost entirely underwater, and Everett gives all the underwater scenes a very murky look. And I mm-hmm. like the idea that he's going for, because underwater is murky and hard to see very far, but that just doesn't really translate well to visual storytelling. So I'm glad that he abandons that.
0: Yeah, it was a very nice touch and gives it a distinct feel. I just don't think the publishing technology was mature enough for him to do it.
1: No. You could you could do that effect differently and very well today, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's just the tech wasn't ready, but full kudos for innovating there. Right. Plus, I always have a soft spot forever at my all-time favorite is Daredevil, and he had a major hand in his creation.
1: Right, yeah, I have a note about that here, too. I do like that the Submariners are so incredibly fishy-looking, but it begs the question how the women get to be such hotties. I don't know how that worked out, but there it is.
0: Yeah, there seems to be a standard trope in all science fiction where the human image of beauty is every species image of beauty.
1: Especially for the females, not always for the males.
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, when you get a sexist industry, well, who cares what the men look like? (laughs) right? We just have our hero who does cool things and the women will fall in love because he's the hero.
1: Right. It's also probably worth pointing out that they all, all the submariners look blue underwater. But out of water they all have skin tones in the more normal human range, if on the fair side of the spectrum, which is different to what we get in the Silver Age designs where Namor is the only white guy among his people.
0: Yeah. And Namorita.
1: But Oh yeah. Yeah. She too.
0: Yeah. Well I guess Namora as well, because Namorita eventually finds out she's a clone of Namora just in time to turn blue, even though Namora was white. But anyway.
2: <laughs> Comics <laughs>
0: Sorry. New Warriors geek in me coming out.
1: <laughs> um i do really like namor he is a terrific anti-hero i'm not a big fan of his post 60s stories at least i haven't read very many that i've liked but this early namor stuff it is a highlight of uh, timely publications as lineup and when he does later form tenuous bonds with surface humans those are always tenuous and can be broken at a moment's insult he's a fun character to
0: read he is and especially in contrast i mean if you go back to the golden age there's a lot of characters that are very clear offs of others. Right. At the Time National and All-American were different companies. You cannot read those early Green Arrow stories and those early Batman stories and not know exactly where Green Arrow came from. In this case, Namor came before Aquaman.
1: Quite a bit before Aquaman.
0: Yeah. This is an elite time of months. I think it's at least a year, possibly more. But the thing that really sets it apart here for me is Aquaman is still in, by and large your standard hero. He's generally a nice guy. Whereas Namor is one of the first heroes who is completely allowed to be a jerk. And he, he's a hero to the Atlanteans, which doesn't necessarily make him a hero to the humans. Right. right. One of the things that they've kept consistent with Namor right from day one is he will fight for the good of Atlantis first and the world second. If that means, you know, pr- if protecting Atlantis and the world Atlantis is on means protecting the surface dwellers, well, he'll do that. Right. But if the best way to protect Atlantis is to bash the heads of the service dwellers, he'll do that too.
1: And he gets involved with the war effort largely because friends of his tell him that it's a good idea and that, you know, friends of his are being threatened by other forces. But it's only because it doesn't conflict with his idea that Atlantis, first and foremost, needs to be protected.
0: Exactly. If I remember the conversations, they're basically saying... These Nazis are trying to conquer the entire world. Once they deal with the surface, they're coming for you. Right. And Atlantis doesn't have the manpower to stand against the entire surface, or at least that was the attitude at the time. So Namor's saying, okay, I need to stop the Nazis before they come for my people, so let me stand with the enemies of the Nazis.
1: Dorma is his young cousin in this story. It's funny that in later years, she's going to want to marry him. Yeah. Well, they are
0: a royal family, so.
1: Yeah. She's so much younger here that she comes off as very childish and girlish which I don't know how much of that to attribute to the actual age of the character or just to the treatment of women a lot of times in comics and stories.
0: It could be both. This was the era of the teen sidekicks. Editorial thought that teenagers could only identify with kids their own age and not necessarily recognize the fact that, you know, when when the kids are playing Batman and Robin, the youngest sibling who's just kind of hanging out gets assigned Robin.
1: Not to be contrary, but we have not yet seen the debut of Robin. The age of teen sidekicks and and even Bucky is is still in the future. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's true. Sometimes I forget that when you don't sit down and actually compare the exact release dates.
1: Yeah. Yeah. was the character find of 1940, and we're right at the end of 39 here. And uh, Bucky wouldn't come until a year after now, uh, right at the very end of 1940.
0: Yeah, so this is, is, I guess, the start of the era of the teen sidekicks. I'd have to do more digging, but Dorma may be the first.
1: Yeah, she's not very regular, but she is there from time to time. And of course, uh Namora I don't know, I haven't read any Namora from the Golden Age to see exactly how she relates to Submariner, but I think she is kind of sidekicky, but that's that's much later down the road, after sidekicks are well established.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in any event he's got this basically the the prototypical teen sidekick. Yeah. Where, you know, here's the character that allows for exposition. Right, right. Which is a nice tool. Because earlier in the issues, the exposition was in caption boxes with or without boxes around the captions. <laughs> and it can be a little difficult to read now because we're used to reading panels sort of top to bottom, whereas if, when you're reading the Angel and the Human Torch stories, you need to read the captions first regardless of where they're placed on the panel. Right. Right. You have, Sometimes for a panel to make sense, you need to read the caption in the bottom right corner before you read the speech balloon in the upper left.
1: Even if it's nothing more than a scene-setting caption, it is intended to be right first no matter where it's placed.
0: Yeah. So it, it does get a little disjointed, whereas with Submariner introducing Dorma eliminates a lot of the captions. Yeah. The way it did it, it's relatively rare to find a panel that has both captions and dialogue. And the actual sequence of reading them is always natural to me when I'm doing it. So we're seeing some of the birth of modern lettering when they realize, no, you need to flow from A to B to C and follow the way the eyes read a, r- a prose page and don't come up with a new way to read a comic
1: page. Now, how much of this um, this three-year run of Bill Everett on Submariner, how much have you read? Or have you read have you read beyond this issue?
0: Not a heck of a lot. I've read most of the ones that are on Digital Unlimited, so it's the first half dozen or so. Okay. But that's about it.
1: Because it's one of the most well-regarded runs of the era. He wrote three years until he entered the war. To my mind, it should be among the highest esteemed runs in all of comics, especially for if you consider the context of where it is in history. He wrote a serial. Saga of Namor, where each chapter builds on what went before with the character in a constant state of evolution. His relationships with other characters are fluid and dynamic, and one of those characters is Carl Burgos's own Human Torch, because the two creators were friends and they regularly collaborated on team-up stories, uh, the first of which began in Marvel Comics number 8. So they created a shared comics universe idea before anyone else did, as far as I know, cuz DC's first Shared universe efforts were All-Star Comics 3, and that came later. Mm-hmm. But uh, there is very little that is left static in the strip, and uh, Everett even has Namor eventually take up the throne to rule over all of his people through some pretty organic, multi-part storytelling that would influence the character into his revival in the 60s because he needs to rule his people and he has lost them. But sadly, after Bill Everett leaves to go off to the war, the book goes a bit more standard And even though Everett would pick up the character again after the war, it wasn't quite the same.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, you need to pick up where they left off. But even the choice to serialize the storytelling in the comic book media at this time, that was risky. Mm -hmm. You didn't see a lot of that in the day. I mean, I remember, I think the first continued story I read from, well, National at the time, there's a detective comic story that spans two non-consecutive issues of Detective. Two
1: non-consecutive issues. Okay.
0: Yeah. I want, I want to say it's issues, uh, 66 and 68, but it is, it's a two-faced story in detective comics that's broken through two issues of detective. And, you know, it's back in the days when it's attributed to Bob Kane, but it's actually Bob Kane's studio and he's got a bunch of people ghosting under his name. And I think it was the guys who made this story came up with one and they came up with another, but just the way the production cycles worked, it wasn't ready for the next issue. So when you read it in the Batman Chronicles, which go by publication date, you get the first part of the detective story, an issue of Batman, an unrelated detective issue, and then the next part of the story and the next issue of detective. Wow. So you've got a good you know, 70 pages in between the two parts of that story. And the publication wasn't terribly reliable. I mean, aside from Marvel Comics, I think the Lev Gleason Company with the Silver Streak and the, the Golden Age Daredevil are the only one, other ones I'm aware of that went really heavily serial. Even the Golden Age Daredevil, when he finally got his own title and they had massive crossovers there, was published after the Human Torch and Submariner crossover, I believe. But I do believe that the Golden Age Daredevil number one, which took all of the characters from Silver Streaks and told one giant story where Daredevil met and worked with all of them, I do believe that was published before All-American Comics 3. Okay. So I believe that was after Human Torch, Submariner, but before the JSA. Gotcha.
1: I have not read any- Golden Age Daredevil. Is that on the Digital Comics Museum? Because I wouldn't mind reading it. It is. Okay.
0: Yeah, it's on the Digital Comics Museum, and there have actually been three archives published by Dark Horse.
1: Oh! Okay, fun. To talk about the impact of this character is... I mean, he, like you said, is the only character in this story that the actual character, his narrative continues forward. There's a little bit of retconning of Golden Age concepts, because really... In the Silver Age, whenever Stanley brought back Golden Age characters like Captain America and Submariner, there was a certain amount of, we're bringing these characters back, but we don't necessarily need to have the same history that was published back then. So there are elements that carry over, but they're also kind of freewheel with the retcons.
0: Which is why you get issues like the 1950s Captain America and Bucky, which were treated as Steve Rogers and James Buchanan Barnes at the time, But which didn't mesh with the 1960s version, so they had to come back and retcon and fix that in the 70s.
1: And maybe they never really had to do that. I do like that somebody got in his mind that it was worth doing, because I like those kinds of playing with continuity. And so then you're able to acknowledge that the Bucky who died in the 1940s, or might have been just the very beginning, 1950 or so, issues of Captain America comics, was a real Bucky who died, just not... That Bucky, it was a later guy playing the part. Mm -hmm. So you're able to sort of mesh everything together and and somehow pretend that it really does all work, at least in outline form, if not in detail.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is a way to sort of whitewash it and plausible enough that the dedicated continuity fans who want it to be continuous continuity can say, yeah, that works, I'll accept that. Which is good, because I'm one of those fans who really likes to have all the pieces that fit together. Right.
1: Right. Now, if you go back and read Captain America comics, it's really hard to see how some of those stories could really be considered still, you know, really? Captain America did that. But, you know, (laughs) it's of the era.
0: It is. And that's one of the hardest things about keeping a universe going for 75 years or more is that the audience changes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing in the 30s. As we said before, coming off the corruption of the Great Depression and coming into World War II, there was... A much more open populace to vigilante justice than there would be today. There are reasons that the Golden Age heroes tended to kill the people that they fought, including, as you reminded me in an online conversation a while ago, Superman and Batman themselves. Whereas by the time you get to the 60s, well, no, they just wrap them up in a neat little bow and hand them over to the police who are going to do the right thing no matter what, because they're the police.
1: Right. And really the whole no killing thing, since it is fiction, and I want to reemphasize that this mm-hmm. is fiction because I have rather pacifistic views towards violence in real life. But you know, in good old, you know, rough and tumble fiction, the idea of heroes killing or not killing, I think is, is is a line that's held to a little bit too a little more strictly than it needs to be nowadays. But the the real life benefit of it is that, well, if we kill a character, if Batman kills the bad guy, we can't use that bad guy again twenty issues later. So we have to come up with a conceit for why he never does. Yeah. But I have no problem with the ideas of depression era, post depression era, World War II era heroes taking out the taking out the bad guys, because that's what was expected of the heroes of the day.
0: Yeah, I've got no problems reading that in a golden age comic. I don't care for that in the comics or movies these days. I like to see our heroes hold themselves to a higher standard, but that's a completely different conversation.
1: They would probably bring up Man of Steel. so we And we're not talking about DC today. We're talking about Marvel. so.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it, it would bring up Man of Steel. And then we'd have a 45-minute detour in the middle of the podcast. So and the
1: listeners would say, are we still talking about that? The movie's been out for a year and a half now. But anyways. Yeah. Should I do my closing thoughts on Bill Everett and then move on? Or do you have any, uh, anything else in Submariner?
0: No, I think that's it. I think it's pretty easy to figure out where he is today and where he's been since. Yeah.
1: He's... Sometimes he's like that skeevy guy who just can't let go of his attraction to Sue. That's how I kind of felt he was in Civil Mm -hmm. War.
0: He was. And that, that's been the, the sort of the biggest anchor tied around him. Bringing him back in Fantastic Four was a nice touch and it opened the doors for the golden age that brought the human torch back and other characters, uh, including Captain America. I liked the way that they wrote around the fact that he'd been out of publication for a while. But as you said, he wasn't a hero for a lot of that. He was an outright villain in most of his appearances. Usually driven by, let's call it his Mad-on for Sue. He was
1: involved in Norman Osborn's Cabal and as a result in Dark X-Men. And I thought both of those were good choices. Dark X-Men maybe less so, but at least it gave him some spotlight time.
0: Yeah, he has been used well. Um, He was, I mean, on the Avengers for a period, especially when X-Factor was relaunching and Jean Grey came back. He was around in that time. He's become the first mutant because of a throwaway line. When I was once reading all the Marvel from Fantastic Four number one on in publication order, mm-hmm. there's suddenly one month where it seems like they decide this is a shared universe. Let's share it. And every single issue references another character in some way, shape or form. Ah. So that the entire line gets referenced somewhere. And there's one panel in X-Men where professor X says that, you know, Submariner is a combination of human and Atlantean, but none of them can fly. So maybe he's actually a mutant and possibly the first mutant. It's a one-panel throwaway conjecture that has stuck like you wouldn't believe.
1: And yet it's one that I actually can buy because I like the logic. I mean, he is a combination of Atlantean and human. So I'll, I'll buy that that will naturally give him breathing on air and breathing in, in water. But once you add Strength of a Thousand Men and Flight to that, then it seems like he's more than he should be as a as a natural son. So being a mutant seems... Like a, seems like a logical explanation.
0: Yeah. Had they left it there, it would have been okay. But then you've got Namora and Namorita. And if we see anything in the Marvel Universe, it's that siblings don't have the same powers. Mm-hmm. They may be similar, but not identical. And that's what we see from Namora and her once offspring, later retconned clone, Namorita, is they've got all the same abilities as Namor.
1: Okay. So if he's the first mutant, then they must be mutants as well.
0: Yeah. And even then, he's not even the first mutant anymore. Just tell that to end Sabanur. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He he may have been the first published, but the history of the Marvel Universe now, mutants go way way farther back. back.
1: Well, Bill Everett probably has the most successful comics career of any creator in this book. He continued working throughout the 50s and was the main driver of the Submariner during his short-lived 50s revival. He later co-created Daredevil, Marvel's Daredevil, not the Golden Age Daredevil, the, the one who's getting his own TV show this year on Netflix. He had mid silver age runs on various Marvel heroes like the Hulk and Thor and of course the Submariner. He even drew two Spider-Man stories. And when his comics career wound down in the early 1970s, he was again drawing Namor regularly with the first issue of the Submariner Doctor Doom series super villain team up being his last published work. So he goes out on a better note than I think Gustafson did.
0: Yeah. Supervillain Team-Up is a much stronger title than the tail end of Ant-Man and Tales to Astonish.
1: <laughs> there are other characters in here of less lasting importance. The masked raider is Jim Gardley, who stands up against some bullies in Cactusville, is arrested on trumped-up charges, escapes, tames a wild horse named Lightning, and puts on a mask because he's a fugitive before going back to town to stop the bad guys. Yeah. Westerns were pretty standard fare, and early action comics issues also ran a Western backup strip.
0: Yeah, Master Raider thinks Zorro, but less cool.
1: Right. The Master Raider was drawn by Al Anders. It would last eleven issues, and then it would disappear into obscurity and never be heard from again. I think on a cliffhanger, because most of these Western strips were serialized. Jungle Terror is a one-off jungle adventure story with the byline Tom Dixon, but that is actually Arthur Pinajan, an Armenian art, American comics creator who used white boy names on his comics, but would do a lot of work for quality comics. He even created the Invisible Hood who is sometimes mistakenly called Hooded Justice and Invisible Justice, but those were the names of the strip, not of the character. And he also created Madame Fatal, sometimes called Madame Fatal. She is known for being the first, uh, possibly most successful cross-dressing superhero. Madame Fatal is an old woman who beats up bad guys with all of the skill and strength of a young man because she is secretly a young man in a dress and a wig. So there's that. There was a text piece in this book because every, not every, but lots of comics carry text pieces in order to get a postage discount that could be considered a magazine. We finally come to Kazar the Great, who actually had his start in pulp magazines three years earlier. He was written by Bob Bird and published by Martin Goodman's company Manvis Publication, but now the comics version is uh, adapted from the previous prose work. He's basically a Tarzan knockoff because Tarzan was all the rage at the time, because Burroughs' Tarzan novels are awesome. Basically, you have a family of white people crash land in the jungle. I say white people because those aren't very common in Africa. Mm -hmm. Mom dies pretty early on. A difference from Tarzan in here is that the dad survives for quite a while, for several years, hoping the boy to learn how to survive in the jungle. The boy whose name is David befriends jungle animals, giving names to a lot of them just like Tarzan did, especially a lion named Zar. Years later, when poachers come to the jungle, David's father, John, tries to scare them off. He is killed and John swears revenge. He is helped in scaring the poachers away by his lion friend Zar, and in the language of the jungle, David Rand would come to be known as Kazar. I don't have a whole lot of notes on this except for the fact that this is actually not the same Khazar we get in the '60s, but that he is somehow officially in continuity because he's part of the official Marvel Handbook of the Universe, or whatever it is they call that. So it's kind of confusing how he fits in.
0: Yeah, the current Khazar is Kevin Plunder, who took on the name as an honorific. It was later Ratcon later where you know he didn't really understand the language of the jungle at the time. He named himself Khazar, meaning brother of Zar the Lion, when there was no brother involved. He had just heard about the exploit. So. Kevin Plunder took the name Kazar, somewhat like Barry Allen took the name Flash. Okay. He, he'd heard the legends of the early guys and took the name. But yeah, John Rand's adventures seem to have influence really only in two areas. One is they establish a version of Kazar, which is another case of, you know, Silver Age Marvel taking the old name to maintain the trademark and running with it with, uh, you know, Kazar now, Kevin Plunder running the Savage Land. The other influence is a little more subtle and it's one I, Forget about until I reread the story. There are some interesting parallels between the John Rand origin as Kazar and the Danny Rand origin of Iron Fist.
1: Really, I don't know very much about Iron Fist, so that's that's news to me. Yeah,
0: if you go back to the origin of Iron Fist, it's a little bit different. Instead of having poachers come later, the criminal element came with them. Danny was traveling with his parents and his dad's business partner, and they're you know in this mysterious land in Tibet and. The business partner is in love with Danny's mother and wants to take over the whole business. So he kills Danny's father. The mother tries to protect him. She ends up giving her life to save Danny. And Danny ultimately ends up in the monastery training to get revenge against that business partner.
1: Okay. So
0: I don't know if I would have picked up on that the parallels because they are kind of subtle. If he hadn't been named Rand in the first place.
1: Ah, so that was a nod.
0: I believe it was, yeah.
1: Interesting. they are also
0: talking about Claremont and Byrne, who are both, you know, big comic fans going back to the beginning and like to bring back the Golden Age characters.
1: And like to use other people's ideas for their own. <laughs> yeah, that too. <laughs> but you're not going to fall to that.
0: Not, not quite to James Cameron levels, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, they like to draw their inspiration from the rich material that's already in the universe, we'll say.
1: We'll just take the legion of superheroes and turn them into the, the Praetorian Guard. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. There should be some influence there where you basically have the lost boy in a strange land and criminals cost him his parents. He's forced to grow up quickly and train and make friends from the elements around him. Again, coming from a wealthy Western background and then learning new skills and new material from the world around him here.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Well, the, uh, the prose story that was used as the basis for the adaptation of this did not end with this ending. The uh, first five Khazar installments are actually used to adapt that one story. craft, the poacher here, does come back. I don't remember now if it's later in the first five issues or if it's in some oh. other installment. After the first five issues, the Khazar strip does continue to run and they, the writers and artists do their own thing. It varies in quality. There are some high points to the run, but it's never one of my favorites of Marvel mystery comics. It's just kind of, you know, the jungle story in the back and I read it and see how it is. And sometimes I'm like, oh, okay. And most of I was like, oh, okay.
0: Yeah. Kazar has never really grabbed me even in the modern incarnation. I liked him in Secret Invasion.
1: Okay. Yeah. Secret Invasion was... I mean, he was a really minor part of that. I just, I liked, I liked, you know, seeing him there and what little he had to do. And that's something that we will talk about a little bit
0: more when we get to story 20.
1: And that brings us to the end of Marvel Comics number one. It does. The first, well, mostly
0: original, or at least unpublished material to come out of Marvel Comics back before it was Marvel, before it was
1: Atlas, back in the timely days. Back when Marvel Comics was just one book, not the company. Yep. To, 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 to describe the the impact of the issue is, is I think, something you've already stated pretty well, but without this one single book the entire marvel universe as you know it and enjoy it in comic and film and tv versions today wouldn't exist
0: yeah this is where it all began although a lot of modern readers if you pick it up and show it to them they go really this is where it all began <laughs> there, there's some enjoyable content here but the most enjoyable stuff we so we've got submariner who you could debate whether he's top of the b list or bottom of the a list in marvel comics
1: some some might put that on the BC uh, boundary, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with you on it.
0: <laughs> he's a character, if you read Marvel Comics regularly, you know who he is. Right. But he does seem to struggle to maintain his own title. Right. Right. I mean, he's done it a couple of times, right? There was the long run coming off of Tales to Astonish and to his own title in the late 60s and early 70s. There was the John Byrne reboot that lasted a while, right? There was Namor the First Mutant. There was the... Bill Jamis Namor, which was the 25 cent issue in the tsunami run, which was that I think was a mistake. (laughs) Yeah. So it has that impact in terms of the actual story beats themselves, apart from a couple of notes in the human torch and primarily, you know, the origin of the submariner, there's very little direct reference to these stories these days. Right. You'll have characters talk about when Galactus first showed up. You will have characters talk about when the Fantastic Four took their first flight to space, when Peter Parker first got bitten by that radioactive spider. But you don't see a lot of people going, yeah, when the human torch turned on Sardano and broke out of his, out of his pool and discovered that nitro suppressed the flame. I don't
1: think we really got any of those references much until the reprint market and things like the Marvel, um, the Marvel Masterworks volumes, because I remember seeing the uh the golden age comics volume 1 put out by marvel on a bookshelf and going <gasps> and seeing this cover for the first time and realizing that like the very beginnings of the characters of the marvel universe was right there in front of me and this is you know early 90s i don't i don't think until people actually started having access to these stories again did we really start getting any of those acknowledgments and references to the to the stories i could be yeah, wrong absolutely. but
0: yeah, a lot of that was the creators themselves didn't have access. If if you go back to those, that especially the wartime comics, a lot of those wartime comics on the back pages would say, "Hey, now that you're done reading this, go recycle it for the war effort." Yeah, there are relatively few surviving copies of these, partly because the paper quality used at the time was expected to degrade in fifty years. So you know, if you just left it on a shelf, it would have fallen apart by the nineties. It needed dedicated care to still exist today which is why we figure there's only about 12 issues of Action Comics number one out, even
1: though a whole lot more than 12 were published. Right, yeah. Some. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of those were done, and they were all disposed of.
0: Right. So once the reprint market came out, the creators could read them for inspiration and expect the readers to have access to them to follow the story. And those are the two elements you need to really make going through that reprint useful. Before then, you can go back to the 60s and they'll do it, but that's by having a two page recap of a previous story embedded in the current story.
1: And those stories were probably reprinted at least once through Marvel's various reprint titles through the course of the seventies and eighties.
0: Yeah, And through the annuals for the same character.
1: Right. Right. So lots and lots of reprints of modern material. Not, and, and there were some reprints of golden material, like through fantasy masterpieces before that became Marvel superheroes, but that was. Early to mid sixties, and then it was done, and it was only piecemeal, and it just wasn't seen ever again.
0: No, not for a long time. As you said, it was the masterworks are what really brought it out, and you could get a few of them digitally now. As we said, a lot of this is available on Marvel Digital Unlimited. There's some more on comiXology from both DC's and Marvel's Golden Age. Uh, DigitalComicMuseum.com has a lot, and they go through and vet it to make sure that they are all in public domain. So you could hit that website. Create a free account, which has had no impact on spam for me. (laughs) It seems to be totally legit. Just create the account and read as much as you want. Preferably contribute if you have access, although not many of us do. But there's some really great stuff in the Golden Age. They've got 21 out of 22 issues of The Spirit. They've got a huge chunk of the Golden Age Daredevil. And that's the Golden Age Daredevil title that ran 132 issues, I believe, even though only 80 of them. Actually, had the Golden Age Daredevil Bart Hill had had worked his way out, but that's a character I highly recommend. There's a lot of firsts in there, which I talked about on my Dave's Darryl Daredevil podcast guest spot, including I think the first time we see a hero's significant other put together the secret identity. So yeah, his love interest was not the most galactically stupid person that ever lived. <laughs> it's she went from a lot of things are going down. My boyfriend just ran off. Now I see Daredevil running across the field. Holy crap, I'm dating Daredevil.
1: <laughs> well, that's one way to do it.
0: There's a lot of good stuff in the Golden Age that gets sadly neglected these days.
1: I, I wish that um, the Starman podcast I was involved with had continued on, because to me, uh, purely from an artistic standpoint, the stories were often rather good, too, but the the look of that book was amazing, and um, I was looking forward to podcasting my way through it, but sadly, the Starman Observatory is, is no more. Yeah, that's it's the double-edged sword of comics
0: podcasts. You get better podcasts when you have conversations, but if you've got the same hosts every time, life can get in the way. Yep. And schedules get messed up. So that's part of the reason this is being recorded approximately six months before you hear it. <laughs> yeah, that is our goal is to make sure that this podcast stays on track and on schedule, which means these are being recorded early and in a very nonlinear fashion.
1: Yep, and probably why feedback just isn't even feeding into it.
0: Yeah, there'll be lots of, you know, if you post conversations on Bureau 42 or when it gets shared through Facebook, if you follow me, I'll be happy to converse there. At this point, we should have a Facebook group established for any fans and be happy to interact there. But yeah, it's going to be hard to go through and give feedback when the first three episodes of recording are 75, 62, and 52.
1: <laughs> well, I will... um I'll be back to talk about another golden age namesake in about three months with a certain Roy Thomas issue of Avengers. But I probably should mention since it's pertinent to this uh, show that I have done quite a number of episodes of golden age Superman podcasts. The show's not officially dead. It's just on an indetermined hiatus. I'll get back to it whenever I start feeling like golden, you know, podcasting golden age stuff again. It's just, you know, my muses are fickle and, and that has left me for a while. But you can find that still. All the episodes are alive and ready and waiting to be downloaded at com. So I hope you enjoy that. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And we'll be dropping in a promo plug at the end of this episode since we didn't really leave room earlier for it. Oh, yeah. Sorry. This is actually the second one we're recording. Still getting a feel for the format. So sorry, listeners. This will get more consistent, I hope. Or already has.
1: Yes. Because of wibbly-wobbly-timey-wimey stuff.
0: Yep. Which is... Yeah, so those of you who listen to my Doctor Who 50 and 50 podcast know what happens when you record things out of sequence. (laughs) Yeah, so again, uh, closing thoughts. Did you pick up on any
1: social messages coming out of this one? Any deeper meanings? You know, I feel like the Submariner and his domain getting destroyed by the bombing tests of the surface dwellers, even more so once the world goes post-atomic and Namor is brought back and his entire race has been Driven into hiding by atomic testings and everything. I do feel like there's a bit of a a pacifist commentary going on from both of those, both Bill Everett and Stan Lee, Mm -hmm. but it's very subtle in this first installment. So I'm not sure how much I want to say that yes, that's happening beyond that. I don't really, I can't really think of anything in the entire issue that would be considered a social commentary.
0: Yeah. Namor is the first character where really it's focused on who the reader would perceive as a villain if they existed in the real world at that time. So I like that whole actions have consequences. Understand the other guy and go for a peaceful solution. There's that message doesn't come out in this issue, but the groundwork to, to give that message comes out in this issue. As far as I could tell, the only social comment we get from the rest of the issue is crime bad.
1: <laughs> crime doesn't pay kids. Read Batman and Robin.
0: Yeah. That's really what it boils down to here is yeah, follow the law, law good, crime bad, adventure fun. Yep. Mess with crime, you will get burned, especially if you're in story one. (laughs) I think that wraps up what we have to say about the birth of the Marvel Universe. In terms of where it landed in the tournament, I think the 60-second spot is pretty fair. Because as we've said, the Marvel Universe wouldn't exist without it, so it deserves a spot. But if you want to pick up a story, read a story that is somehow fundamental to the current Marvel Universe and highly entertaining in its own right, this isn't that one. Not compared to some of the others on the list.
1: Not compared to some of the others on the list, especially not com- not in the context of today's storytelling sensibilities. I think the Submariner installment is a, is a damn fine Golden Age story, but when you put that in the context of a 2014 twelve year old or 2015, it's 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 kind of a hard pill to swallow.
0: It is, and that's part of the reason I'm so looking forward to what's coming as this goes through.
1: Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I was, I was surprised to see this one on the list, but I was happily surprised to see it on the list. And, um, of the two Golden Age comics that made it, this is probably the less deserving one on story content, but it, like you said, like it created the Marvel universe. So it deserves some recognition for that. It's one of those I think the other, there, there are going to be others that deserve recognition for their impact, if not necessarily for their innate story quality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and as we get to the end, we are going to see stories that do both. Incredibly entertaining story. Actually, all three tasks that we're looking at. They will have social commentary, they will have a very compelling story, and they will have an impact on the Marvel universe from that day forward. Yay. Yes, there's a lot of good stuff coming. So again, John, thank you for joining us once more. We can assure the listeners that they will be hearing more from you, which I'm sure they'll be happy about, as am I.
1: I'm happy about it. I like to talk about comics and I like to hear myself talk. And that's why podcasts exist for me. (laughs) Plus, well, we've said
0: it offline and we've said it here that there is a a distinct quality to podcasters that seems to attract teachers. Right. And it's nice when I'm listening to teachers podcast. Some people will just go say, Hey, yeah, I like this issue. People like yourself, you're coming in, you've done the research background. It makes for richer podcast. And I do appreciate that.
1: Oh, thank you. I, I, I've enjoyed listening to your, uh, your X-Files stuff, the research you put into that is pretty uh, pretty daunting, actually. <laughs> <I wouldn't laughs> but but yeah, it, it makes for interesting listening.
0: Yeah, and a lot of that has been running over the past 20 years, because it started when I was watching. <laughs> so, All right. So thanks again for, for joining us. And uh, for the listeners at home, join us next week when we talk about Silver Surfer Parable, which is the two-issue 1988 miniseries with Art by Mobius. That one is available on Marvel Digital Unlimited, on Comixology. It has been collected both as part of separate trades and recently as the two issues in one reprint. Uh, sadly, it's not available on the Forty Four Years of the Fantastic Four and Silver Surfer DVD that came out before the rise of the Silver Surfer movie. So, those of us who were hoping to get the complete Silver Surfer up to that point had everything but those two issues, which we had to get separately.
1: Sadness, because if they're one of the greatest stories I've ever told, you, then they would have put on the DVD. But then again, the Iron Man DVD that had all the Tales of Suspense and all of Iron Man did not have Iron Man and Submariner number one, which bridged the gap between the two because of the weird publications thing that they did. So, you know, the the, the, the CD people made mistakes.
0: Yeah, Git Corp was trying. They, If you actually listen to their public statements, a lot of it was that when they were negotiating rights, it was by title. Ah. So because Silver Surfer had the word parable in the name, it wasn't just Silver Surfer next volume they would have to license that separately. That's for probably Iron Man and why o.
1: Iron Man worked. Okay, so that, that makes sense.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, that's why the that split books sense. did it. All right, so join us
1: again next week. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. With me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a 10 cent pulp comic book to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman available on iTunes and at golden Com. Every legend has a beginning.